Good evening and welcome to Starfest, the St. Albert Readers Festival. I'm Peter Midgley, the host for the evening and the festival director. On behalf of Starfest, thank you so much for joining us for this evening for, to which we have looked forward to so much. Before we introduce our guests for the evening, I do want to acknowledge that we are broadcasting from Treaty 6 territory, home to Indigenous peoples and Métis. Uh, you can purchase tonight's books at both Edmonton's independent bookstores, Audrey's Books and Glass Bookshop. We have posted links in the comments section. Please follow the links, buy the books. After the introductions, our guests will speak for roughly 40 minutes. That will be followed by a Q&A session. We do invite you to please post your questions in the comments while the conversation is happening. We will gather them and relay them to the audience at the end of the evening. Um, remember, if you are on YouTube, you have to log in to be or in order to be able to comment. So, all right then, tonight, we have been waiting for this for many years. Our interview for the evening is Paula Simons, an independent senator representing Alberta in the Parliament of Canada. She is a former journalist and columnist for the Edmonton Journal. Senator Simons is a longtime Starfest favorite and has appeared at every festival without fail since its inception. Paula, welcome back to Starfest. Well, I am delighted to be back at Starfest, even if I'm in a disembodied, you know, non-corporeal form. Aren't we all? <laughs> and tonight's star guest is Emily St. John Mandel and her highly anticipated new book, The Glass House, has just been shortlisted for the 2020 Scotiabank Giller Prize. Her previous novel, Station Eleven, which was, has just been made into a miniseries and will soon be screened on HBO. I cannot wait for that. Now, Emily Mandel was born and raised on Denman Island off the west coast of BC. She left school at 18 to study contemporary dance at the School of Toronto Dance Theatre and briefly lived in Montreal before settling in New York City. Emily, it truly, we are thrilled to have you join us at Starfest. Thank you so much. I wish we could all do this in person, but it's wonderful that we can at least do this. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So just before we go, please remember, post your questions and comments and enjoy the evening. It's over to you. Well, thank you very much, Peter. And thank you very much, Emily, for joining us from New York, where it is two hours later and, you know, much, many, many degrees warmer. I believe so, yes. <laughs> so Station Eleven, which uh, won pretty much every prize for which it was eligible. Uh, oh, I was saying that. I wish that were well, true. <laughs> it, it won a lot of prizes. It was, uh, yeah. It is a work of speculative fiction set um, rather presciently in a world being ravaged by uh, a global pandemic, a little on the nose, perhaps, for the moment. Uh, the Glass Hotel, though, takes its inspiration from recent history and from the Ponzi scheme run by New York uh, uh, financier, if one can call him that, Bernie Madoff. And I wondered what it was about that story uh, which inspired you to write this novel at this time. It was a couple of things. And something I'd like to emphasize is that every character in this book is fictional. So it's not actually a novel about Bernie Madoff or no. his actual investors. But you're right. The central crime is exactly the same. It was partly just that I was fascinated by the scale of the crime, which for anybody who wasn't obsessively following foreign financial news in 2008, that was a $65 billion, with a B dollar Ponzi scheme. 
So it was partly that so many very intelligent people were swept up on in it. And it, it almost seemed to me to be a kind of mass delusion where investors, including one who's actually one of my in-laws, someone quite close to me, were receiving these account statements, which made absolutely no sense. But because everybody was making money, they just kind of shrugged and let it go. So I was fascinated by that, the scale and the mass delusion. More than that, I was fascinated by the staff. So at the time that the story broke, I had a really great day job for a writer. I was a part-time administrative assistant at a cancer research lab at the Rockefeller University in New York, which is to say I was working in a really interesting environment around really intelligent people. And what I found myself thinking about was the camaraderie that exists in any group of people showing up to work every day, you know, that sense of shared mission. And when six or seven of Madoff staffers went to prison, I found myself thinking, what was that office like? You know, I mean, think of that natural camaraderie. Now imagine how much weirder and wilder and more intense it is if you're showing up to work on Monday to perpetuate a massive crime. So I was just, you know, the idea of that was so strange and fascinating to me. I think Ponzi schemes work in large part because they rely on the greed and gullibility of investors. I mean, they pay you too good to be true returns right, right until they don't, yet people fall for them again and again. And I'm wondering if you see any kinship. I mean, a good Ponzi schemer is a kind of an artist, like a novelist or an actor, someone who creates illusions and spins stories. So, I mean, is there something that resonates with you, the, the con man as artist? That's an interesting idea. Um, you're right. They are spinning a fiction. I'd actually kind of thought of them more in terms of, um, I hope you'll forgive me since you're a senator, but in terms of politicians that, you know, so and I, I don't mean you. I don't mean you at all. I don't even mean anybody in Canada, but I am calling in for the United States. And, you know, uh, the phenomenon of the man in the empty suit. The uh, the con man, this age of alternate realities, alternate facts. Um, yeah. You know, it resonates in a really terrible way where I felt like I was writing historical fiction. But then by the time this book was finished, because it took forever, it took five years to write The Glass Hotel. By the time it was finished, we were in this awful era of populism and fake news and propaganda campaigns, wherein it can feel like reality itself is subject to debate in a really corrosive and I'd say like almost criminal way. So yeah, maybe, uh, maybe there is an element of the fiction writer and in, in the character of the con man, but I was, uh, I was looking more toward the Oval Office when I saw resonances <laughs> between, uh, between the current moment and the book. Well, I, I, I think this is an interesting, you know, chicken and egg thing though, is, is the politician is the con man a politician or is this particular politician a con man? I think this particular politician is a con man. No, it's, uh, it's by no means common to politicians, but let's say there's a new genre of politicians because yeah. he's not terribly dissimilar to some of his counterparts across the Atlantic, let's say, um, right down to the hair. And yeah, you know, there is this current genre of politician that uh, it's hard to admire. <laughs> Put the matter very diplomatically. So we are introduced to your story by a brother and a sister. Paul, when we first meet him, is an aspiring composer in Toronto with a serious drug problem and a guilty secret. 
His younger half-sister, Vincent, is a sometimes video artist who's working as a bartender in a very upscale hotel on a very remote BC island. So can you tell me about their relationship and why you decided to make them sort of the narrative center of the novel? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do find myself returning over and over in fiction to the half-sibling relationship, which... You know, I've, I've never had an interest in writing about my own life in any direct way, but I am from a large family and I do have an older half-sister. And we have a great relationship, but that's a really interesting familial bond. Because, you know, with, your, with siblings with whom you grow up in the same household at all times, you can kind of track the same childhoods. Yeah. But the condition of having a sibling who's with a completely different family half the week, you know, it's just a very... Uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting dynamic, and it's something I've returned to a couple of times. Yeah, that condition of having grown up with someone and yet also having had a completely different experience in many ways. Yeah, like that kind of alternate timeline liminal relationship. Right, right. yeah. Yeah. So when we uh, first meet Vincent, she's working, as I say, as a bartender at this remarkable hotel. I want to stay in this hotel. <laughs> Me too. I wish it were real. <laughs> But she moves from BC to New York to live uh, as as a wife uh, to Jonathan, who is a billionaire uh, investment manager. Uh, she becomes almost a different person when we see her in, leave from one environment to to the other. She almost takes on a new identity. And you made a very similar transition from Denman Island to New York City. So did you find yourself making a similar transition? How different is Denman Island Emily from New York Emily? Um, very different, but it was a much longer span of time because in between that there was Toronto, Emily, you know, I lived in Toronto for four and a half years or so. And then I spent some time in Montreal. So by the time I got to New York, so many years had gone by since, you know, since the 18 year old who left an island. When I think about Vincent, it seems to me she has this kind of chameleon quality that you just alluded yeah. to, which goes back a little bit to something that really interested me in this book, which was the performative aspects of our lives. So she's a bartender. And in any industry that depends on tips, there is absolutely a performative aspect to it. You know, I, uh, I've made much more lattes than martinis. I was a terrible bartender you know, the time that I tried it. But, um, <laughs> you know, there is an element of almost wanting to be the bartender who the customer needs you to be, you know, to, yeah. to get the best tip. It's just kind of survival. So I saw her as someone who was very accustomed to that performance. And it wasn't really much of a stretch to her to just kind of take that performance to a slightly higher, more sustained level and kind of take on this role as a, as a trophy wife, essentially. Yeah. Um, yeah, she was, she's my favorite character in the book. I enjoyed writing her. Now, there are many different narrators and narrative perspectives in The Glass Hotel. In some ways, it reminds me, you know, of the sort of the Victorian novels of Wilkie Collins, where he has, you know, these multiple narrators and perspectives in The Moonstone and The Woman in White. And I wonder how those narrative switches affect the way we see the different characters. That's actually a major reason why I do them. It's, you know, I usually don't get into this except in the really like technical craft talks and stuff with MFA students. <laughs> but, um, you know, there is something about switching narrative narrators and switching timelines that I think can give you a very three-dimensional vision of who a character is. Yeah. 
So if you have chapter A, you know, chapter one from the perspective of character A, and then maybe the next chapter is from the perspective of character B, but looking at character A, maybe at a completely different time in both of their lives, you just have a very different, more rounded vision of who that first character was. So I find it to be really good for character development and also just a kind of generally interesting way to tell a story. I really like being able to take all of these different angles and jump between them. All right. So maybe this is a good point in which I can say that one of, I guess, two of my favorite chapters in the novel, because we've been hearing, you know, from from Paul's perspective, from Vincent's perspective, from Jonathan's perspective, and then you sort of introduce a Greek chorus of, right. of, of those office workers that you alluded to, the people who've been... It, they sort of know that what they're doing is illegal. Some of them appreciate the degree of illegality more than others. But we suddenly pull back and hear about this from, from their perspective. And I'm wondering if you could give us a little taste of, uh, of that chorus. I would love to, yeah. Um, this is actually the first part of the novel that I ever started writing when I first started thinking about the book, which, you know, after four years of revision became chapter 10. But yeah, so, okay. Uh, <laughs> A brief and wildly edited excerpt from chapter 10. The Office Chorus, December 2008. We had crossed a line, that much was obvious, but it was difficult to say later exactly where that line had been. Or perhaps we'd all had different lines or crossed the same line at different times. Simone, the new receptionist, didn't even know the line was there until the day before Al-Qaedas was arrested, which is to say the day of the 2008 holiday party. When Enrico came around to our desks in the late morning and told us that Al-Qaedas wanted us assembled in the 17th floor conference room at one o'clock, this had never happened before. The arrangement was something we did, not something we talked about. Al-Qaedas came in at 1.15, sat at the head of the table without making eye contact with anyone and said, we have liquidity problems. There was no air in the room. I've arranged for a loan from the brokerage company, he said. We'll route it through London and record the wire transfers as income from European trading. A knock on the door just then, and Simone came in with the coffee. No one was sure where to look. Simone had only been on the job for three weeks and wasn't party to the arrangement, but it was immediately obvious to her that something was amiss. Only Ron returned her smile. Joelle stared blankly at her, as did Alcatus. Oscar was looking very fixedly at the legal pad on the table before him, and it seemed to Simone that there were tears in his eyes. Enrico and Harvey were staring into space. Simone finished pouring the coffee, closed the door, and waited in the corridor instead of walking away. It seemed to her that no one spoke for an unnaturally long time. Look, Alcatus said finally, we all know what we do here. Later, some of us would pretend that we didn't hear this, but Simone's testimony would echo the accounts of several of us who did hear it. Some of us who pretended not to hear it would also pretend not to know there was a line. I'm as much a victim as Mr. Alcatus's investors, Joelle told a judge who disagreed and sentenced her to 12 years. But then at the far opposite end of the spectrum was Harvey Alexander, who would agree wholeheartedly with Simone's testimony and go on to confess to things he hadn't even been accused of in a kind of ecstasy of guilt. But for those of us who did hear what Al-Qaeda said in that meeting, those of us who admitted to hearing it, that statement represented the final crossing, 
or perhaps more accurately, the moment when it was no longer possible to ignore the topography and pretend that the border hadn't already been crossed. Of course we all knew what we did there. We weren't idiots, except for Ron. We shuffled our papers, stared into space. We imagined leaving the country, Oscar, or made firm, actionable plans to leave the country, Enrico, or decided fatalistically that it was too late to go anywhere, Harvey, or indulged in the fantastical notion that somehow everything would work itself out, Joelle. Ron glanced around, confused. He often seemed confused. The rest of us had noticed that about him. And it seemed he actually didn't know what we did here, which was baffling in retrospect. What did he think we were doing, if not running a Ponzi scheme? Still, there it was. He looked around in the silence, cleared his throat, and said, well, we have so much trading activity with the London office already, though. The silence that followed this remark was, if possible, even worse than the silence that had preceded it. No trade had ever been executed through the London office because the London office was comprised of a single employee with five email addresses whose job consisted primarily of wiring funds to New York to give the appearance of European trading activity. That's an excellent point, Ron, Harvey said. He spoke kindly and with a certain sadness. Say, um, a brief excerpt of chapter 10 of The Glass Hotel. You know, we, we would all clap at this point if we were in I'll the library. <laughs> I would clap. Everybody would clap. You're all clapping at home, right? Yes, you're all clapping uh, because it's a it's a great passage and such and such a fascinating perspective because you know it shifts the ground because up until then I think as a reader I've been very you know I've been very much in you know in, invested in the stories of the people who've lost their money. And to suddenly put a human face on the people who've carried out the Ponzi scheme. I mean, there's a later scene where Joelle, who's got kids, decides she's going to give them one last happy day and drags them through FAO Schwartz and, you know, to get ice cream and insists, isn't this a happy day? Aren't you having fun? And the kids know that there's something amiss. And it's such a poignant moment because, I mean, we don't know Joelle very much, but in that one snapshot, we get. It's a microcosm of everything that makes her tick. Absolutely, yeah. And you know what's sort of appalling but fascinating to think about is just that kind of moral slide. You know, can we say for sure that we wouldn't make, you know, a series of decisions that kind of bleed into illegality and then a kind of mob mentality takes over where because everybody around you is doing the same thing, it seems somehow okay. You know, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's troubling. And I did find that even though, all of the characters in that passage, except Simone, who just started working there, um, you know, all of them are committing this arguably unforgivable crime. I mean, lives are ruined by this scheme as they were ruined by Madoff's scheme. I still had a kind of sympathy for them. You know, they were they were people who'd made a horrible mistake and did horrible things. But, you know, as you alluded to in that passage about Joelle, also they are people. So, yeah, you know, it's uh, I had a complicated relationship with the villains in this book. Yeah. In my previous life as a journalist, uh, I had the opportunity, if one can put it that way, to cover a couple of high-profile cases of Ponzi schemes and investment scams. And in every single case, the person who orchestrated the scheme had plenty of chances to run to escape someplace, you know, with a with a warmer climate and no extradition treaty. But they didn't. They Isn't stayed that in Edmonton. <laughs> yeah, that was, they, they, uh, yeah. they, they stayed it's in so weird. Even when they knew 
they were under investigation or should have known. And I've never understood whether they believed their own cons or at some level they wanted to be caught or whether they just couldn't admit failure. So why do you think your con man, Jonathan, makes that same choice not, right. not, to, not to go? I don't know. Um, and, you know, I've read so much about the Madoff crime right down to court transcripts. And I can't wrap my head around why he didn't flee either. I mean, yeah, these are people with an enormous amount of money. And, you know, it's not theirs, but they have it available yeah. to them. Um, and yeah, as you say, they have every opportunity to flee. Plenty of places won't extradite you. Yeah, I, I don't get it. Honestly. I mean, I mean, um, what, yeah. one of the cases I covered, you know, he had a Belizean passport. He had, you know, he, he had prepared to leave. Right. But, but he didn't leave, I think, in part because he was so enjoying being a philanthropist. He, you yeah. know, I remember all the people who gave character testimony at his trial. Is that he was so generous. He gave all this money to the arts in Edmonton. And I, you know, people phoned me afterwards and said, you know, you were so mean when you wrote about him. And I said, you realize he didn't give you any money. He gave you promises of money, most of which yeah. never materialized. And what money he did give people wasn't his. But... That's you know, fascinating. People so, like, were dazzled by his personality. And yeah, I mean, in that case, that makes it sound like by staying and pursuing philanthropy, like that allowed him to think of himself as a good person. Like that was maybe more important than fleeing to Belize. That's that's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it it is it's an interesting psychology. Um uh one of the themes that runs through the book is also the question of theft and how we define it, because it's not just the simple embezzlement of money that you explore, but the theft of ideas, the theft of art, the theft of artistic inspiration. So what's the greater sin to steal, steal someone's money or to steal their creative genius? I don't know. It's a, it's a harder question. I feel like than it appears because like, I feel like there's a certain kind of artist who would be like creative theft is, you know, the, uh, the worst possible sin. And like, yeah, it's terrible, but compared to somebody's entire retirement savings, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, you can regenerate artistic ideas or have new ones. Uh, your retirement savings, not so much. Um, you know, it is, it is a tough one. They're both terrible violations just in very different ways. Yeah. So Jonathan, uh, ends up being, I mean, losing his mind with guilt, haunted by the ghosts of those who suffered and dies, died because of his Ponzi scheme. Initially, I read those ghosts as metaphors, as psychological projections of his guilt. But as the book goes on, the ghosts start to feel more and more real. Um, oh, good. That was, that was what I was going for. So I appreciate so, it. <laughs> so, so how do you want us to understand them? I wanted it to, well, really, you had the ideal experience, I would say. Um, <laughs> I wanted it to be initially ambiguous, that, you know, his sanity is chipping away around the edges a little bit, which um, I think is a natural response to a life sentence in a federal prison. You know, um, not, not just a life sentence, but 100, 170 yeah, years. Yeah. So the, you know, American sentencing is amazing. Um so Madoff was sentenced to 150 years. So I upped the ante and made it 170 in this book. And in both cases, well, I, sh I should say in the Madoff case, because the reality is amazing. Uh, for technical reasons, the judge was required to impose a three-year probation period following the end of the 150 years. <laughs> so, so Madoff's ghost is going to be under probation, just you know, letting everybody know. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, with the ghosts in this book. So I, I did, or that section, I should say, I did want the reader to have that experience where at first it's ambiguous. You know, they're probably projections of guilt, but I liked the idea that as made up as, sorry, as Alcatus uh, loses his grip on reality, that the reader also might start to lose their certainty that these ghosts really are just projections. They're not real ghosts. You know, if you can use the word real and connection to a ghost, I think I'd always wanted to write a ghost story. So the, uh, the more I revised this book, the, uh, the ghostlier I got. So it's a ghost story. It's yeah. a murder mystery. Um, it also uh, employs a couple of characters who sneak over from Station Eleven, uh, and find, which is a work of speculative fiction, and find themselves in the Glass Hotel. But are the novels set in the same universe, or do they take place in parallel universes with adjacent timelines? Uh, the latter. Yeah, it, it, I did think of it as parallel universes. You know, all of my novels stand alone. They don't need to be read in any particular order or anything like that. But I do sometimes become attached to particular characters, and I just want to use them again. And so that happened with Station Eleven. I realized long before I finished writing the book that I wanted to return to Miranda and um, her boss, Leon, who's a very small character in the final draft of Station Eleven, but, of course, a major character in The Glass Hotel. Yeah. Um, reusing those two characters... I feel that there are no spoilers for a book that's been out for six years, but sorry if anybody experiences it this way. Um, you know, if you kill off your characters in a flu pandemic, it's hard to use them again, just kind of as a general statement. So I tried to set up that idea of parallel universes in Station Eleven uh, with really with the agenda of figuring out a way to use those characters again. So in one of the final chapters of Station Eleven, a couple of characters uh, – Kirsten and August, in one of the post-apocalyptic chapters, are resting by the road, and they're playing this game that they've clearly been playing for years, where they just kind of riff on alternate ideas of reality. You know, like, for example, imagine a world where that, the flu pandemic never happened. So I was trying to lay the groundwork there for different worlds or alternate universes. And then I tried to lay it further in an early chapter of The Glass Hotel when Vincent's wandering around Manhattan. She has an incredible amount of time on her hands. And she's kind of playing the same game just with herself. You know, um, imagine a world where that terrifying new swine flu hadn't been quite so swiftly contained. So, you know, I was trying to lay, lay it out there. I know it's not obvious. I, I've had a couple of really lovely reviews, which I really appreciated. Uh, and also they talked about how the Glass Hotel is clearly set in the years leading up to the Station Eleven pandemic. And that wasn't really my intent. So, yeah. you know, if you're if you have an, anyone listening who hasn't read the Glass Hotel, there is no pandemic coming. It's it's 100 percent pandemic free. It's not well, I'm glad some places. I know. Right. I'm going to turn to fiction if nowhere else. <laughs> so so much of this novel is about loneliness and isolation. The isolation of living alone in an abandoned hotel in the wilderness. The isolation of being in prison. The isolation of being on an ocean freighter. The isolation of drug addiction. In, it, it's like a, a book filled with shipping metaphors with ships that pass in the night. And I kept thinking about E.M. Forster's line, only connect. Is the tragedy of the Glass Hotel that your characters, even when their lives ov overlap, can't connect? To some extent, yeah, that, that's certainly the tragedy of Vincent and Paul, 
who, if Paul could just grow up a little bit, you know, uh, he could have a really close relationship with someone who's always wanted a relationship with him, his half sister. Um, but you know, in some of these cases, so Walter, you know, who's alone in a hotel, he loves that. Yep. So, you know, I, there's a, yep. yeah, so he is absolutely isolated, but for him, there's no tragedy in that. And then Vincent, there is an element of isolation in a ship, but at the same time, there is a kind of camaraderie to it because you are at sea with other people and, yeah. you know, not to bring all roads back to Rome or all roads back to the pandemic, but, you know, here in New York City, uh, where this year has been rough, um, yeah. I'm in a little pandemic pod with three families. And so we're isolated in the sense that we can't spend time indoors with any other people. And that's pretty hard. But at the same time, I do feel this really kind of wonderful little micro communities. So I guess I think of Vincent's life on the ship in those terms that, you know, she's at sea with 20 people who she really likes and she loves her life. So yeah, you know, I'd say there's, there is some isolation in the book, but other places it's maybe deceptively not that. Yeah. Now, I mean, this whole year has had this weird sense. I think back to books I read as a kid, you know, Swiss Family Robinson and the Little House on the Prairie books where they're sort of like snowed in for the winter and don't see anybody else. And when I was eight, I thought that was such a romantic and beautiful idea. <laughs> it's, it's now that we're living it. <laughs> you can tell that I've been thinking too hard. Um, how shall I put this? Sunset Boulevard is one of my favorite movies and it begins with a body floating in a pool and the whole rest of the film is a flashback to how the body got there and i know that right yet every time i watch the film i get so caught up in the story that i forget that the conclusion is inevitable i forget that you know that the protagonist is gonna die and be the body in the pool right and so I we're weirdly i found this parallel with the glass hotel because we start with a body floating in the ocean. And then I got so caught up in the novel that I, when we got to the end, I had the same feeling I do when I watched Sunset Boulevard. I wanted a different ending. And you, right. and you take us right back to the beginning, which I should have remembered. It didn't take me that long to read the book, but I was so swept up, swept, you know, swept up, swept away in the, in the story that I forgot the, inevitabil the inevitability of where we were going to I'm back. So why? Why did you torture me by structuring your novel that way? Well, thank you. I you know I appreciate that it was uh it was still suspenseful. Um I don't know, is the honest answer. You, you know what's kind of crazy? I, I didn't do this on purpose, but after I wrote this book, and a big part of that was spending four years revising it to figure out the structure. So things moved all over the place. Uh, only after I wrote it did I realize this is the second book in a row where I kill off a major character on like page three. <laughs> I think I need to break that habit because it is manipulative. But I love that structure too. I find it fascinating to be presented with the climax first and then how did we get here? Now, yeah. one, of my, one of my very favorite novels is The Secret History by Donna Tartt, which begins with the discovery of a body. And then you go back in time and you meet that guy. Uh, so you know for the entire book that he's going to end up dead in the ravine. But it's still riveting. You, know, you just want to know how you got there. Yeah, it's the uh, the Columbo version rather than the Law and Order version of Solving right. the Mystery. Right, exactly. I date myself. Um, <laughs> I love Law and Order too. <laughs> so I have to ask, I mean, Station Eleven was your... 
I don't want to say it was your breakout book because your other books also were, you know. No, but it was. But it was. It, but it was. It Nobody was. read my previous books before Station Eleven. <laughs> so Station Eleven is about a society destroyed by a global pandemic. It's not COVID. It's the Georgia flu. But it's about a society destroyed by a global <laughs> pandemic. Yeah. So I wanted to know if you were more emotionally prepared for COVID-19 because you'd written this book, or has it actually made it harder on you? I don't know. Maybe somewhere down the middle. Um, you know, on the one hand, researching pandemics can give you this kind of historical long view in a sense that there will always be another pandemic. You know, for the same reason, there will always be another earthquake. It's just one of these things that happens to us. Uh, of course, it didn't have to be this bad, you know, of course, speaking for the United States, where it's been catastrophic for political reasons. But there was always going to be another pandemic. So as COVID started approaching, you know, first it's kind of rumors, then, oh, it's still in China, then, oh, it's just in Seattle, as if it hadn't spread everywhere at that point, you know. Um, yeah, we were so we were so naive in retrospect. Um, you know, so as COVID started approaching and becoming a part of our lives, I guess there was maybe some comfort in thinking like, okay, this was always going to happen. And hopefully this version of it isn't too terrible. But at the same time, all that research doesn't really prepare you for the reality of it, I have to say. And I think if I were to go back and rewrite Station Eleven, there are probably a couple of things I'd do differently. I think that I thought of the state of being in a pandemic in kind of binary terms, like you're either in a pandemic or not in a pandemic. Yeah, But there's this very strange prelude to a pandemic where you know it's coming, you're stocking up on canned goods, but you're still sending your kid to school because you've got to get work done. So, you know, how would you do that? Just like, you know, missing the point yeah. by a thousand miles. Um, and I'm kind of fascinated by that period in late February, early March of this year before lockdown. When, yeah, it was like this mass failure of imagination on all of our parts. Um, so yeah, there's that. And then- there's a kind there's a kind of ambiguity where a pandemic is in your city, but infection rates are low. You know, it's yeah. reasonable to send your kid to school, but also very reasonable to keep them home and be in a quarantine bubble. So that's another kind of psychologically weird uh, ambiguity, I guess, that I hadn't really considered with pandemics in the past. Um, yeah, so I will say, you know, in summary, living through one is different from. <laughs> Well, with luck, um, COVID-19, as bad as it is, will not be quite as bad as the Georgia flu. I mean, that's actually been a shocking thing for me is, you know, the Georgia flu in retrospect was so over the top. Like the mortality rate was like 99.9%. Um, I wouldn't have anticipated that, a pan that an illness with a single digit mortality rate would shut down society in quite the way that it has. So that's kind of been fascinating to observe. And yeah. I realized, you know, math was never my strong point, but, um, you know, that, that's still a lot of people, you know, a single digit mortality rate, like it's yeah. still devastating. So yeah, that's, that's another thing that I just didn't think about when I was writing Station Eleven. Well, I, I, I would like, please, for that not to come true. Thanks much. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. No problem. Yeah. I think my next book should be utopian, like just in case. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to go, I just want to go and live in the Glass Hotel. Me too. I wish that were real. Oh Yeah. Well, I think, you know, this, if, if if you make a, enough money as, you know, as a best-selling author and selling the TV rights, maybe you right. can go back to yeah. BC yeah. and build your- Build the glass hotel. Right? Build the dream hotel. 
<laughs> All right. I have so loved this conversation that I am I'm jealous to give you up to questions from the floor. And yet Peter and I did promise that uh, that everybody watching on YouTube would be able to ask you questions and I couldn't hog them all. So, Peter, do you have some questions? At this point, um, well, there was a question that I think was answered already, and that was one actually for you, Paula. Let's start with that. Was oh, all right. who was the Edmonton con man? Um, um, Peter Bailey said he thinks it was uh, Michael Ritter. Well, you know, uh, as I'm telling this story, there, uh, it wouldn't if if that's what Peter Bailey says. He's a librarian, and he would remember. <laughs> 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 yeah, but, uh, you know, but there there were a number. There was another uh, fellow I wrote about. It wasn't a Ponzi scheme precisely. It was more like mismanaged investments. And he had been sort of, a, you know, the, the, the grandson, I guess he was the great grandson of Edmonton's early mayors. They were a very old money Edmonton family, which is not the same as being an old money New York family. But, you know, they were an old money Edmonton family and people invested with them because he had this sterling reputation for probity. And many of the people whose money he invested were people who were close to him. I suppose that's the other thing. It was a question I meant to ask uh, Emily. I mean, some of the people uh, that, you know, that your con man cons are people who are very close to him. Um, people yeah. who think of them have, of him as a close personal friend. Um, in in this other case that I'm thinking of um, in Edmonton, I mean, some of the people who were the most devastated were, you know, cousins and nieces and nephews and people who trusted their family member uh, because of his sterling reputation. And uh, I think the heartbreak for them was 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 that sense of personal betrayal too. And I wondered, you know, for uh, within the characters of the Glass Hotel. It's one thing to take money from strangers. It's another thing to take it from people who who know you and believe in you. I know. Yeah, it's psychopathic. And that, that was an aspect of Madoff's crime that really troubled me. Was, you know, there was this horrible story of him going to, I don't know, it was like a high school reunion or something in Queens, New York. And some of his old friends wanted to invest with him. And his line was... Uh, well, you know, okay, but, you know, you guys got to raise $3 million, like, you know, go all in on this. So it's high enough to meet the, you know, to meet the number to invest in my fund. Like, yeah, these are, uh, yeah, it's disgusting. It's, it's monstrous. You know, and yeah, I mean, there are all kinds of, I mean, most of us will never, will never run into that because most of us are not going to have $3 million to invest <laughs> yeah. in an invitation only fund. But, you know, um, there are all sorts of people out there involved in multi-level marketing schemes. Uh, you know, of the most seemingly benign kind. But, you know, if the way you get your money back is that you sell more candles or more plastic, you know, boxes. Right. Uh, I mean, I think we've all known, like, you know, perfectly normal suburban moms who got embroiled in multi-level marketing. And it's it's the, it's the same mechanism and the same psychology. Yeah, I think so. Was that what those Tupper party, Tupperware parties were about? I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't, or was I don't, that more I, above board? I'm not sure about Tupperware, but yeah. I mean, I, you know. I like I, I, thing when I was a kid, but anyway. I'm, so. probably, I'm, probably, I'm probably maligning people who sell candles, but, you know. Right. You know it's probably an honorable industry. In there. <laughs> you know, but, 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 you know, I, and I think they're sort of like they're sold to these little parties and you go yeah, and yeah. everybody has the wine and the cheese that we're not going to have at this book, at this book event and um it's it's that 
it's that toxic cocktail of, of mixing the social with the business that is the betrayal of the trust. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Peter, if there are not more questions. No, no, I've got more okay. questions. There, okay. there right. was a quick flurry while you were oh, chattering right. away there. Um, let's start with Catherine Kerr say, asks here, you're pretty tough on brothers of your main characters. Lucas and Paul were both uh, weak slash drug addicted, addicted characters. Is there some symbolism to the heroin slash opioid addiction you inflict on them? Uh, no, <laughs> no, it's, it's a valid question, but it's pure coincidence. Okay, pure coincidence it is. Uh, so, and um, Corey asks, do you believe in parallel universes? I think I want to believe in parallel universes just because it's such a fascinating idea. And, you know, we all have these inflection points in our lives where we did one thing instead of another and that changed everything. And it's just so easy to imagine the version of the world where you did A instead of B. And in my case, maybe kept on being a dancer in Toronto instead of somehow ended up being a writer in New York City, which seems somehow less plausible than you know the life I would have lived if, I, uh, if I'd stayed in Canada. And, um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's like the X-Files, I want to believe. But I'm not sure. <laughs> okay, then. And then uh, Joanne Mathieu asks, uh, Jonathan says here, Jonathan is referred to by three different names. Why? By three different names. I guess, uh, right, Al-Qaedas, Jonathan, or there must be a different one. Um, you know, I'd never thought about it, to be honest. But... Each section of the book is told from the perspective of a different character. And, you know, you do return to sections sometimes. Like there are three separate chapters called a fairy tale, for example. Uh, the people very close to him would call him Jonathan. And his staff would call him al -Qaedis. I think just um, they hold him in very high regard, even though, you know, as he says in that chapter, they all know what they do there. He's, he's still the boss. So, yeah, I would say it's contextual depending on who's referring to him. All right, and then I think we're going to start playing some des Desert Island Discs here but, uh, because here's the question is to both of you, actually. Uh, it was addressed to both of you. It says, Paula, you've appeared at every Starfest, but Emily, you too. If you had to isolate with two other people you've interviewed from the festival, who would it be oh. and why? And, uh, well, the same question goes to you, Emily, not necessarily for being at Starfest every time, but... You know, desert, desert island disc moment here. Okay. So okay. should I just apply it to like all festivals I've been to? So sure. Go ahead. Okay. Right. Uh, I still don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was, uh, I was interviewed by a friend of mine at the Sydney Festival, Michael Robotham. And uh, yeah, he's a nice guy. Um, yeah, I've, I've been interviewed by a lot of really lovely people. It's, Hard to pick two, and I'm going to be intensely boring and not answer the question. All right, All right. Paula, now you're on the spot this time. All right, so I think um, the the gimme is Todd Babiak because he's a friend of mine, and um, he's also very handy. You know, un, 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 unlike me, you know, he can do he can do judo and um, 
he's you know he works out so if we're going to be if we're going to be marooned on a desert island i want to be with somebody who can chop down a tree and light a fire and also be amusing um so that's one um i don't know i've interviewed some fabulous people at the festival terry fallis was very funny um and would you know i'm sure he'd like you know now that i'm a senator uh, which I wasn't when I interviewed him. Uh, he he would be, you know, amusing. I don't know. Emily is is experienced with pandemics. She's thought she's thought them all through. Uh, so. But you know, it's like I can tell you about the smallpox epidemic in the 1790s. It's like super useful. Yeah. Look, this question is. Um, you know, pandemics or any crises have a way of revealing aspects of personality that might not be revealed on a festival this is, stage. So this, is, this is very, very true, which is why, yeah. you know, as I say, I, I knew Todd, we worked together at the Edmonton Journal and I've seen him in a crisis. Well, okay, a crisis as in a journalism crisis. Right. I'm like, actually, I'm like an actual life crisis, but also he's moved from here to Tasmania and, oh, wow. you know, and is now working for the Tasmanian like tourist authority not tourist authority, but like he's like coming up with marketing schemes to promote Tasmania. And so my my feed from him is constantly filled with pictures of beaches and and so yes. Yeah. Um, not that we're better. That sounds really nice. <laughs> okay. Then I have two questions here that I'm going to sort of lump together from EK and also uh one that was emailed to me from Janine uh Shantz and says just wondering what the process for researching this book, uh, how the process occurred, and did you reach out to Ponzi scheme victims or to any of the perpetrators or any uh, like that? And the other question is related to, to that, basically just asking what research took place. So, yeah. Right. Uh, so what often happens to me with books, and this was no exception, is that I'll be intensely interested in a particular news story or particular topic and end up reading a great deal about it. And then only later do I decide that it's going to be part of a book. So I feel like I did a lot of research that I didn't realize was research just from reading so many stories about the Madoff case when the story broke. When I decided that I wanted there to be a Ponzi scheme in my novel, I went back and read a lot of those articles. I read two books on the scheme. There are a lot of great books out there on the topic. And, you know, um, as I mentioned earlier, I do have an in-law who was a Madoff investor. And, you know, he was one of the extraordinarily lucky ones in that he invested a fairly small amount of money over a long period of time, took more out of the fund than he put in, and it was not devastating when it collapsed. So, you know, talking to him about that phenomenon I mentioned earlier of um, the account statements that made no sense, everybody just kind of went along with. So there was that. Um, I spent a lot of time reading court transcripts, including victim impact statements, which was fascinating and also really hard to read. You know, a lot of, a lot of people lost everything. So that was the research for the financial crime. It was not a novel that required an incredible amount of technical detail. You know, it's uh, some some novels have. I've read police procedurals like this, where it's really like detail, detail, detail of like how things exactly happen in a very technical perspective. Uh, this was not that book. Um, this was the book where my knowledge of the mechanics of a Ponzi scheme really just had to clear the bar of like you know an intelligent reader of literary fiction. So I didn't 
I don't have a deep understanding of finance and I didn't need to for this book. Um, so yeah, then the other part of it was container shipping, which I ended up researching a lot. And that was really interesting. I read a great book on the topic by the British journalist, Rose George called 90% of everything. And I read a lot of blogs by people who had been to sea. I came across this video blog on YouTube. Um, that was maybe the most useful thing just by a guy who's a merchant seaman on a container vessel. And he's also a really good videographer. So it was a lot of snapshots into what that life actually looks like, which I found really helpful. You know, what does, what do crew quarters look like? Like the room with the table bolted to the floor, the rest of it. So yeah, that was, uh, that was the bulk of the research for this book. You also write fairly technically about music uh, because Paul is a composer and it made me think, you know, of that old, adage that uh, writing about music is like dancing about architecture. Right. So, know, I, so I didn't yeah. know if you had a music background. I mean, as a, I mean, as a dancer, obviously, but. Yeah, I, I do a little bit. I played the piano for 10 years or so, but you know, I've always sort of disagreed with that adage, to be honest, because, <laughs> you know, I went to a really good dance school and I was trained as a choreographer. So whenever I hear that, I'm like, why would dancing about architecture present a problem? That's, you know, that's something you can do. <laughs> but at the same time, yeah, you know, it's going to be difficult to write about different, different mediums. All right. And then uh, I've still got a couple of questions here. One comment that came in is, uh, yeah, or question is, Jonathan talks about slowing down time with his social extravagances, and Vincent talked about knowing their relationship was transactional. So why do they have the self-awareness but ignore it anyway? <laughs> I mean, does something have to last forever to be good? You know, that's kind of an interesting idea that I like. That, you know, Jonathan, uh, Vincent knows that her situation is not indefinite, which I suspect is the situation for most women who choose that path of being these kind of, trophy wife figures, which I don't mean in a derogatory way, by the way, you know, it's an, it's a really interesting little corner of the economy, these women who make these very kind of mercenary trades. That is time limited because that particular kind of physical beauty doesn't last forever. I, but you know, that's not to say that one couldn't enjoy that life very much while they're in it. So yeah, you know, um, some things are transient, but that doesn't mean they're not worth it, I guess is what I feel. But, 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 you know, I think this other point here that I think lots of us are self-aware and know what our failings are and fail to course correct. Yeah. Nonetheless. Okay. And I seem to have about two more questions that I'll take. And then I think that we're going to be getting there. And they, besides people saying, uh, Paula, more questions. But <laughs> All right. I will, I will ask more questions. I go, mean, go but, then. no, 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 no. No, give, 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 give the ones you've got. And then I'll, uh, I've got I'll... there's talking about uh, mentioning international shipping by water in Station 11 and Glass Hotel, says Michael Thompson. How did you learn about this? And do you have any personal experience? I, no, I don't have any personal experience. I would love to go to sea in a merchant vessel. I think that would be an interesting experience, you know, for three weeks or so, not for six months, the way real seafarers do it. Um, I came across it. I came across this field uh, during the last financial collapse in uh, 2008, 2009. You know what? It was 2009. It was an article in the Daily Mail. I want to say the writer's name was Simon Perry. 
And the title of the article, it was something like uh, revealed the ghost fleet of the financial collapse or something like that. And it was about this very strange thing that had happened where, you know, of course, in an economic meltdown, fewer goods are crossing the oceans because nobody's buying them. But international shipping, it's not really, uh, there's no parking lot for the ships. You know, uh, the, the ships remain in motion at all times. So all of a sudden, shipping companies had all of these extra ships, just excess capacity. So their very strange solution was that a whole fleet of ships was anchored about 100 miles south of Singapore Harbor. And what that experience was like for the locals is the residents of this Malaysian shipping village. You know, they went outside one night and the horizon was ablaze with lights. All of these ships that had just been parked at anchor with a skeleton crew. And there was just something so bizarre and kind of beautiful and haunting in that idea and in the photos that accompanied the article. So then I incorporated shipping into Station Eleven. I was like, oh, this is kind of a cool field for Miranda to be in. And then when I decided to use Miranda again in this novel, um, in The Glass Hotel, shipping kind of came with her by default. And yeah, and then once I realized that Leon, who was her boss in Station Eleven, actually in both books, uh, was going to be such a major character, all of a sudden, like, there was just more Leon, so there was, there was more shipping. So yeah, it ended up, um, I did end up writing two books with a lot of shipping, which <laughs> wasn't entirely intentional, but that's what happens when you recycle characters. And Leon is such, I mean, he's such a lovely character, you know, having, having been a successful, you know, financially successful and, and he and his wife are wiped out by their investments, but they don't, they don't give up. Right. They, yeah. they make some very hard choices to keep going and, and, you know, to take on jobs that they, that other people might consider, you know, humiliating or beneath them. They're like, no, this is what we're going to do. We're going to. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Keep... Sorry, I keep stepping on you. No, 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 no. It's an awkward format. You know, um, there is a massive itinerant workforce in the United States. And it's a little dark and it's really interesting. There are a lot of people who live in RVs and follow jobs from state to state. Um, you know, the U.S., I'm so grateful for all the opportunities I've had here, but it does have a slightly higher degree of um, maybe callousness, I guess. I don't know what the word is, but I had a great in-conversation event a few years ago with another Canadian novelist, Omar Ellicott. He was promoting yeah. American War. It's a great novel. Yeah. And we were talking about the weirdness of being Canadians living in the United States. And he just had this incredible turn of phrase that encapsulated it. He said, you know, the thing with the U.S. is there's no ceiling and there's no floor. And I just found that stunning. It kind of summed it up. You know, it's a country that can send people to the moon, but universal health insurance, like, can't be done. You know? <laughs> so, yeah, so that's... Uh, that's something that I was thinking about as I was writing this book and imagining the lives of people who've lost everything, which frankly, I don't really have to imagine. You know, those people are here. Um, yeah. There are people who've been on the road since the last economic collapse. So yeah, it's a, it's a fairly dark little, um, little angle of American society. Yeah. All right. Peter, do you have any more questions or should I, I ask my questions. final one? I have two questions and then we'll hand it right. over to you and says, uh, John Mackle asks here, why is it, why is writing on glass? Is it writing on glass that is a catalyst for change 
for Paul, Vincent, and for Jonathan, and the women, woman who helps bring him down? It's, um, the thing with that question is I can't completely reveal all of it without giving away a pretty major plot point. But uh, if I just go to the first message that we see written on glass, where somebody writes, why don't you swallow broken glass in the window of a hotel? Um, I've been on social media for quite some time. And at one point, and this was years ago, um, some troll told me to commit suicide on Twitter. And they didn't use exactly that phrase, but it was something very similar and very strange. And it got me thinking about the unintended consequences of messages. You know, the idea that people could have seen that message even though it wasn't intended for them, that it could have put their lives in a different trap. And yeah, so I was thinking about that. And maybe, Maybe a lot of it just comes down to the architecture of the hotel, but I had imagined this hotel with a dramatic glass wall. So that's what that's what was written on. I don't know if there's a more strained metaphor about like glass walls and social media, um, but yeah, I'll have to think that one through. That's plenty then. Then after this one, over to you. And uh, Jill Horvath says she's fascinated by the concept or genre of the great American novel as a Canadian author, do you think there is such a thing as a great Canadian novel? I don't know that it's possible to define the great anything novel. You know, um, something that, this is kind of something that I think about on the topic of like literary awards culture, which, you know, I've, I've had the incredible good fortune of being close to in both the United States and Canada. Um, being nominated for awards in both countries is just this feeling like, you know when you're when you're shortlisted for an award um i feel like you always have to have this awareness that a different jury would have picked a completely different set of books and you know extrapolating that out to a larger question around national literature i think you could get 10 literary experts together and they'd pick 10 different novels that are the great canadian novel you know or the great american novel so I don't know. I just feel like this stuff is so subjective. And I don't know what, the, you know, the sort of one great novel would look like, or if it's even desirable, you know, if we should be thinking in those terms, or if we should be thinking about, you know, what are new and interesting directions for the form of novels to take, you know, that kind of thing. Okay. Well, Paula, over to you for a final question, and then we'll say fa our farewells. I just want to say that the great Canadian novel is Carol Shields' *The Stone Diary*, and the other okay. great Canadian the other great Canadian novel is Mordecai Richler's *Solomon Gursky Was Here*. But I no, you're 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 right. There is no such thing, especially in a country, a bilingual country, a country with so many different regional cultures. But those would be my those would be my two contenders. Right. Um, so I guess the final question I'll ask is a kind of a I don't know self serving one. One of the characters who emerges very powerfully as the novel develops is the crusading journalist who she just knows in her bones that there is something wrong with this investment scheme. And she cannot get anybody to listen to her. And she, she becomes a kind of a Cassandra figure. I mean, she's right about everything, but nobody will believe her. And she seemed to me you know, the apt metaphor for our times when, you know, you talked at the beginning about the way 
that the last four years have been, you know, we've all kind of been gaslit so often that it's hard to know where truth is anymore. Right. And I just, I just wondered, you know, she finally is able to prove her point, but does it give her, you know, does it give her satisfaction? I don't think it does because it's too late. You know, yeah. she's been ignored for so many years that everybody's already lost everything. Um, she is a completely fictional character, but it's interesting to note that there was a whistleblower with the Madoff scheme, this guy, Harry Markopoulos, who was a kind of like independent analyst, I guess, who just had a really good mind for numbers. He was telling people for years that it was a Ponzi scheme. He even got an SEC, um, Securities and Exchange Commission investigation opened. But because he rubbed people the wrong way, you know, he just didn't really fit in uh, in the same way that Ella Kaspersky in the novel doesn't really fit in. People had a hard time taking him seriously and kind of dismissed him. And I think, you know, in my understanding, that's not uncommon for a whistleblower figure. That in some ways, the quality that the qualities that make you a whistleblower, you know, this willingness to go against the crowd and go up against popular opinion are also the qualities that make you kind of difficult to be around and make yeah. people maybe dismiss you more easily. Like, oh, she's crazy <laughs> than, than they might have otherwise. So, yeah, yeah it's a, it's an interesting phenomenon. Well, this has been an absolutely delightful hour. I, it, it's such a strange thing not to be able to see and hear the audience because, you know, normally I know how much everybody in the room has, in, has enjoyed themselves. But I just know in... <laughs> I just know in the marrow of my bones that everybody has enjoyed this conversation as much as I have. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank stay you. It's been such a pleasure. Stay safe in Trump's New York City. Thank you. Um, you know, here we worry about the COVID numbers there. We also worry about the political implications of, of what happens next month. Yeah, so, same. you know, if, if, if you need to come home, um, we'll, we'll make you isolate for 14 days, but we won't let you back in. It's a small price to pay. <laughs> right? Believe me, the thoughts occurred to me. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Peter. And thank you to, to Peter Bailey and to everybody at the St. Albert Public Library. I love this festival, and I'm so happy that I was able to take part in this disembodied way this year. Well, and... From us, I can tell you that if I have to judge by the number of claps in the comment section, <laughs> everybody did enjoy this. So oh, good, I'm happy it's, to hear that. It's a, it's a silent acknowledgement of a, a of a lovely <laughs> evening. So it's very zen. Yeah, <laughs> there yeah. you go. If you can see a hand clapping, did it clap? Believe sure. me, it did. There you go. So. Uh, as we close out again, a thank you from me to both of you. It's been an absolute delight to have you around here. And as we close out, a reminder to everybody out there, please, the links are down at the bottom of the comment feed. Buy the books. We rely on that. You can get them at both Edmonton's independent bookstores, Glass Bookshop and Audrey's Books. And yes, thank you to our technical team who yet again made a fabulous evening happen. And please visit Starfest online, www.starfest.ca. Register for the remaining events. We've got some fabulous authors coming up in the next couple of days. And so from me and all of us here, good night.